Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to a special episode 187. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. 21 years ago this weekend, I stood at ground zero in lower Manhattan for one of the most devastating days in American history. And now, 21 years later, is still very much the time to stay vigilant. 21 years later, I now live with my family just blocks away from that same site. The world has changed dramatically. The neighborhoods changed dramatically. And now, after a couple years up in the mountains, my family and I are back in lower Manhattan. And this week, we're reflecting on the fact that 9-11 is one of the single most influential moments of the 21st century. It was terrible and tragic and a moment that is forever etched in our country and our globe's history. It redefined the trajectory of the entire world and will continue to shape the future for decades to come. And it's a moment that changed everything for our globe, for our country, for my city, and for my family. I was there at Ground Zero on 9-11 as a first responder. So was Rob Sarah, a frequent guest on this show and the host of the Firefighters podcast with Rob Sarah. We saw the horror of it all firsthand. The scale, the depth, the scope. And while most of the world watched it on TV, we were there. Helping, scrambling through the wreckage, trying to be helpers, trying to find survivors, trying to do anything. It was as horrible as things can be, and no one should ever have to endure what the people saw down there that day. And we can never forget. And part of never forgetting is committing to a better future. And part of never forgetting is hearing the stories of those who were there. So at least here at Independent Americans and all the shows we produce to Righteous Media, we never look away and we never forget. We honor the sacrifices of those that were there. We share the stories of those that survived. And we teach those who weren't even born. Never forget has to be much more than a hashtag. It has to be what we do. It has to be who we are. So this episode, in honor of 9-11, we'll share some clips from my show and from the firefighters with Rob Sarah, with people who were there. I encourage you to go back and check out the full episodes of my conversations with Rob Sarah and Rob's from the firefighters with some truly incredible people. Rob Sarah, Rich Navioski, Joe Camarada, Al Berry. All firefighters who stepped up when others ran away. True helpers who embody the best of what America and New York City are all about. And you'll hear from Lila Nordstrom, who was just in high school on 9-11. And she fought afterward for rights and support for other students who were impacted by 9-11. And she's been fighting ever since. I saw Lila today at a protest to save Wagner Park in Lower Manhattan. She was there sharing her story, teaching others, and fighting for the future. That's what 9-11 is really all about. Whether you were there as a firefighter, 
watching on TV, are not even born yet. The spirit of 9-11 is about the spirit of community, the spirit of helping others, and the spirit of rising up from the darkest moments to shoot for a brighter future. That's what 9-11 is really all about. And that's how we really never forget. Welcome to 9-11, 21 years later. Welcome to 9-11-2022. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 187. Rob Sarah. I don't know how you feel, but I feel like when, that, when the founding fathers founded this country, they, 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 they founded a government that should be held responsible by the people. And, and here we have a government that acknowledged the fact that they, that they lied to us, they gave us misinformation. They had their own reasons to get Wall Street open and all that. Um, you know, that's a whole other story. Yeah. So, and now when it comes down to take care of the, of the people that they sent there to clean up their mess, you know, they, they're talking to us about money. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me, tell me about the wheelchair? Can you tell me about the wheelchair that you're in and, and the, the story behind it? Yeah. Well, the wheelchair I'm using now belonged to Ray Pfeiffer. Ray was the face of the of the fight in 2015 um he he had stage four renal cancer for for over eight years and uh you you've you've met him never met a, a nicer more graceful man yep. I, I don't yep. I, I don't know if you met yep. him Did you absolutely meet? yep uh you know I, he lived every day with a smile on his face and he, even though he was he, he was dying and uh yeah, I mean, he went down there in between his treatments, and, and and he did what he had to do up until the very end. So when I uh, started, need, you know, my my legs started getting worse, and my neck started getting worse, so I started needing a wheelchair. Ray's family was often uh, uh, nice enough to offer me his. Wow. So now that's what I use when I go down there. I use the, the chair that Ray uh, that Ray lobbied with. And you're carrying on the fight, man. You're, you're bringing it forward. And um, I'm grateful for you, and we're all grateful for you. I mean, this, this, this makes you angry, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, needless to, needless to say, right? It makes us angry, and it probably should make other people angry, right? I, uh, to, quote the, uh, to quote Jesse Ventura, I don't really have time to be angry right now. You know? <laughs> I, I think I'll be angry when this is over and that bill is finally signed. But right now... I, I can't afford to be angry, you know? Yeah. Um, like you said, I got three little kids. Uh, you know, they, they don't need an angry father. And, and not only that, I, think it, I don't think it would, uh, it would help me do my job if, yeah. I, if I, you know, because it'd be what I would want to do would just go down there kicking and screaming and yelling and fighting, but you know that that's not, that's not, that's not what's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the you first know? guy to, to quote Jesse Ventura on this podcast. And I, <laughs> and I don't think the last, I think we will have other well, Jesse. It wasn't an exact quote. No, yeah. You, you know, he said, you know he about. said, I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but so how do you, I want to, you know, there, there's some positivity out of this, right? Like you're motivating people. You're setting an example for those kids of yours. Um, you know, what, what's something that gives you hope and, and makes Makes you happy, man. When you, when you think about um, you know the future or just the day to day, how do you how do you keep going, man? There's a lot of people who listen who are going through struggles. What, what kind of advice would you give them on on how to keep going and and how to turn that anger into something positive? Uh, I I think about my kids. You know, I I basically that's all I think about. And yeah, I have a responsibility to teach them, and I and I know that the odds are that I'm not going to be here. You know. 
at times when they're really going to need me. So I, I have to give them, as, you know, as much of an example as I can. And I, I say, like, I can't teach them how to, how to throw a baseball. I can't teach them how to ride a bike. A, I have a lot of physical limitations, but I could teach them how to fight for themselves. I could teach sure. them how to stand up for their friends, how to do what's right. So that's what I do, and that, that's what I use as my motivation. I mean, if I, if I sat around thinking about all the bad stuff that's happened to me in my life, then what good would that do? And, and, and who is that going to help? Nobody, right? Yeah. So I just try to keep my focus on, you know, not only getting this bill passed, but helping the other people out, you know, through, through the uh, Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. You know, I, I, I help out these other families because I know it's, it's more than just the first responders or, or, or the people who are sick that are dealing with this. You know, it's, it's going to affect us for generations. Yeah, and, and that's the sad part. I got, I got one, I got one last question for you, man. Sure. Um, my little kid wants to be a firefighter. He wants to be a firefighter and an, and an astronaut, but he wants to be a firefighter. Uh, what's the best part about being a firefighter? For me, oddly enough, it was the kids. I always loved. My favorite part was riding around, waving yeah. at the little kids. Yeah. Um, but just getting to help people, you know, and and I feel like, and I'm, maybe you felt like this in the military, but you really get to know people when you know when when you're in situations where where you think you're going to die, yep. you know. And I feel yep. like you 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 get to see a level of truth um, that maybe the every, everyday people don't get to see, you know, and maybe a little more respect for life itself or or, or whatever, you know. I, I always looked at it like every day I went to work, there was a good chance I was going to witness the worst day in somebody's life, hmm. which and you had, you and you had a chance to make it better. Yeah, but also it's good to know that. You know, when people are in that situation, they need somebody there, you know? Yep. They need somebody to, to give them hope or give, you know, or even just be nice to them and, and hold their hand. You know, that sometimes that goes a long way. So. Well, what you're doing is going a long way, man. And, and it's, a, it's a courageous thing to be there for people on their worst day. Rich Navioski. I was off, I was, but I was working, I was, excuse me, I was living in uh, Long Island City where I lived there for a number of years. And my, you know, my firehouse was in Woodside. It was a short drive. So, um, you know, I was, uh, laying in bed and reading a book and my dad called me up. He's like, Rich, you, you see the news? And I turned on the TV and, and, you know, it was all unfolding. It had just happened the first plane. So, you know, I, I just jumped in my car immediately and, and uh, drove to the firehouse. Uh, and then, and then they did a full recall anyways. And they said, everybody, you know, go to your firehouses. And, and, um, so that, that was, uh, so again, I wasn't working, um, on duty. But, uh, but as soon as we got to the firehouse, everybody just started gathering all the tools. Rescue four had gone, gone down there on the, you know, second alarm or the, I think whatever alarm they gave it, as soon as they realized it was an airplane, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, all all the guys were, were killed in rescue four. And, um, and so we, we uh, just gathered all the tools that we could get out of the firehouse, everything that was still there, which of course there are plenty of tools. And, uh, somebody, uh, kind of flagged the bus, you know, an MTA bus on Queens Boulevard. And uh, the the bus driver had everybody, all the passengers get off and we just loaded all the tools onto there. And then everybody that showed up at the firehouse firehouse, um, got on the bus and we went down. And so so, um, so then we got to the West Side Highway where they kind of held us for a little while while they were trying to make sense of what was going on and get, you know, get riding lists together too. So they could keep track of that. Cause they, there were so many rumors as you, as you remember, you know, there were so many rumors about who was alive, who was dead, who was missing sure. everything else. You know, I mean, it, you know, at one point they thought, if I remember right, they thought like 40,000 people had died, you know, or something. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, it was it was really, you know, there was so much uncertainty going on. Um, so once they got us so together, I had my group that I was with. Uh, there was um, one, two, three, four, five of us. I think it was, if I'm remembering right. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to be forgetting anybody because it's an important group, you know. But um, sure. but and then the five of us, we we stripped um hose off of a of a engine that was that was parked there, and just you know folded up and we you know we had a length of hose on our shoulder each of us. We had you know some hooks and stuff. You know we just grabbed a couple you know tools and you know we didn't know what we were going to need. You know we just went walking in and it was just you know and as you as I know you re, you recall as well as I do, you know it was just like you went from the gorgeous blue sky into, you know, Armageddon, you know, I mean, it was, you know, sure. just like a blizzard, you know, but it was all, you know, of course, ash and smoke and everything else, you know. Joe Camarada. What we all saw on TV, and again, I know you were there, so this doesn't apply to you, but what most people saw on TV who weren't down there, it was a lot different than what it was down there. You know, we were originally trying to find our way to the trade center, but the way that those buildings had fallen, it created like a debris field of like a circular or rectangular debris field that you couldn't really get to the site. So, you know, at that point we were directed by chiefs and commissioners to there's a staging area under the Manhattan bridge. You're going to stage there until we tell you what we need to do until we figure out what we need to do. And that was a couple of hours going by and I was trying to reach my brother. I was trying to reach my parents. You couldn't get through to anybody. And I'm knowing he's not, things are not okay. And I remember there was a path mark there and we were told to go into path mark and just take everything that you think could be utilized up there. And there were just shopping carts of going in and taking supplies, 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 loading up the vans and just waiting. And then it got to a point where I couldn't wait no more. And I, I, told my captain, like, I need to go up there. My brother's up there. He's missing. I've heard from him. And he was like, Wait, this is direct order. We need to stay here. We're going to eventually get there. We're going to do our part. We're going to get there. We tried to, you know, we can't get there. We're waiting to figure out what's going to go on. And I just was like, listen, I'm going. He said, if you go, you're suspended. I said, honestly, you have to do what you have to do, but so do I. I took off my badge. I took off my shirt. I took off my gun belt and I made my way up to the World Trade Center site. Um, and I went with, uh, and, and my partner, Jerome Crimea at the time, he was begging to come with me. The captain's like, he can go, but you're definitely suspended. If he goes, he goes alone. And then the, the Staten Island trustee, Richie Rodriguez, had went up there with me, and we were climbing over debris, and we couldn't see. It was snowing in our eyes. It was burning our eyes. We couldn't breathe. We had no masks. Every time we were breathing, it felt like razor blades going in our lungs. And it was somewhere around like 5.30 at night. We were across from World Trade Center 7, and there were huddles of firemen all over the place, just like off-duty guys. You were probably in one of the pod, the, the huddles. I, 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 I couldn't even tell who was there. There were so many firemen trying to huddle. And I just remember seeing the destruction, burning cop cars, crushed fire trucks, flipped over fire trucks, EMS vehicles on fire, sludge, the soot developed into sludge that was, you know, eight to 10 inches deep, fire hydrants broken, water all over the place, snowing. And I remember hearing the sounds muffled under the debris of the pass alarms and the pass alarms are attached to the Scott pack. And the Scott pack is the fireman's air supply, which it's likely a 45 minute pack, but it's really only like 20 minutes or 22 minutes of air. And if you remain motionless, you would hear a slow screeching building up, building up, building up until it's a full out screech and an alarm. And I remember hearing hundreds of those muffled deep under the debris. And I just remember thinking to myself that indicated hundreds of rescue workers trapped in debt. And I yeah. just, 
I was walking around to these huddles. Has anybody seen engine 28 ladder 11? Has anybody seen Mike Camerata? Where's ladder 11? Where's engine 28? Not no people just looking at me like we, nobody has any idea what's happening right now. You know, it was fear that there was over a thousand firemen that were killed. Um, and I just remember this one old fireman. Um, he was, he had to be retired. It looked like his bunker gear. He had like the jean bunker gear from like seventies or eighties. He came yeah. to, you know, retirement to head down and help. And, and I just remember him saying like, this is a grave situation and nobody's going to make it. And I remember another fireman saying this building here is going to come down and it was world trade seven. And I'm not kidding with you within two minutes, the ground started to shake and I was across from seven and seven started to come down and the twisting girders and steel and the screeching and everybody is running and screaming. And I'm with Richie Rodriguez and I'm running and running and I'm hearing debris crashing. And I make a left near century 21. And I look back and Richie's not with me. So now I'm thinking like, did Richie get killed? And as I'm running and I'm hearing all this crashing of debris, stuff is flying all over. I'm saying, what if I get killed now? What if Mike's alive? What did I do? And making the left, and he's not with me. And then I saw a cop on duty near Trinity Church. And I said, look, I'm a police officer. I need your radio. I need to call my unit. And he's like, I don't know who you are. You're not wearing a uniform. You're not getting my radio. And I just remember grabbing the radio from him and calling a 1085, which is officer needs assistance at that location. And that seven just came down. And then my unit came and got me. And that's 9-11 in a nutshell. Al Barry. We uh, made our way up the, uh, I believe was the B stairwell coming in from West Street and uh, proceeded to climb up the uh, North Tower. And uh, we got to about the 16th floor when what we thought were the, all the uh, elevators being recalled was actually the South Tower collapsing. And, you know, radio silence basically was in effect. There was... There was no radios uh, going on. Now, as we've learned, uh, there were reports of no radio transmission being heard um, on the upper floors. So our radios were still working. But at that point, during the collapse of the South Tower, there was no, it was silence. And that silence comes into play a little later, as, as I tell this to you. Um, so we thought all the all of them were being recalled and we kind of didn't make it anything big of it, but we didn't know that the South Tower was collapsing. I guess that's what I'm trying to get out. Um, so we climbed up to about the 22nd floor when we got the May Day to remove ourselves from the North Tower, imminent collapse. Um, now, 22nd floor is something that is said that the radios did not work past the 22nd floor. So that's kind of a key number right. for us anyway, because, I mean, we were we were not energetic making our way up the North Tower uh, in any, <laughs> any way to say it, because our boss, uh, Lieutenant Tom Piambino, he had a, a knee condition. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like every five floors, we had to kind of chill out a little bit, let him uh, let his knees 
kind of rest a little bit, right. which was to our advantage. <laughs> and, and you're carrying about 150 pounds. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, uh, and wearing some of that gear here. went by the wayside. I, I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> Once we got around the tent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, with that said, we made our way back down upon here in the May Day and notifying other guys as they're coming up because there were there were still guys coming up you, and they were even though we verbalized that there's a mayday they still we gotta we gotta we're going up you know how how, how the men do we we have our assignment we got to do what we got to do um so on our way down you know it was very orderly it was not uh pandemonium coming down the, the civilians were making their way down as we were making our way up and on our way down the civilians were it was it was a very orderly fashion um certain floors uh there were no lights and some people were i guess fatigued and needed help uh which we tried to do uh we would administer a little bit of air from our packs and you know get them moving um so yeah made our way down i would say around the third floor there was signs of a breach of the building where we had to remove some rubble from the stairwell and that was kind of when the light bulb went off gee this 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 Maybe that 16th floor recall, there was something to, something more, right. something more to that, um, which we were about to find out upon hitting the lobby floor. It, it was pandemonium at that point. It was it was walking into the war zone. Um, my boss was he was like uh, he gathered us together and said, let Let's just make our way out because there's no way I, I can't see where we can get any other information at this point because right. it was it was crazy. Um, so we could you went see, out. Could you physically see anything at that point? Or was it was it just blacked out smoke like or dust? No, there, there really wasn't. There really wasn't any smoke. It was like I said, around the third floor, there was some rubble. Right. Uh, from a wall being pushed in, pushed out. Um, but that was really it at that point. Um, don't know what that rubble was because, okay. you know, the North Tower did not collapse, but something happened in that area. Uh, but once we got to the, uh, the lobby area, it was, it was crazy. People were running amok. Um, it was, it was nutty. Uh, but my boss said, let's, let's all go out. We went out the same way we came in onto West Street. There was a chief there that was uh, screaming, everybody go north, go north. He had a bullhorn in his hand, but he wasn't using the bullhorn. So, you know, you could see it in his face. There was something going on. If you look to the left, you could see there, there was, you know, it was uh, Beirut, you know, there was a problem. Right. And uh, we really didn't, for me personally, there was no time to actually process that. 
because as we took a few more steps, you looked up and the building was coming down. And that was easily processed. We started, uh, you know, running, <laughs> running north. And uh, everybody got scattered at that point from my company. I, I dove behind a, a police car. And um, moments later, I had a pile of people on top of me. And um, yeah, that's the North Tower had collapsed. And uh, talk about the silence and such things that it was slow motion, really the process. I, I didn't watch it come down. I saw it once as it was coming down and, you know, kn knew I needed to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Um, as it was coming down, the silence was just amazing. Um, is it a slow motion process of your mind? That's probably what it is, you know, and your mind filtering out things as you're trying to, run for cover, you know? Lila Nordstrom. I think there's a lot uh, that gets lost when we talk about 9-11. Um, so I'm hoping you can fill that in, uh, especially for those in the first responder community, um, as we saw in the last couple of weeks uh, when we lost all those children in those fires. Um, it's kind of our responsibility to take care of the children, right? Like we always, we take those losses the hardest. Um, totally. And I think that's, kind of why we we do what we do like my favorite part of being a fireman was the little kids waving at the fire truck when you drove it's like the greatest <laughs> feeling in the world but really that's i mean we're there to help all people but but the, the helpless and the and the children are our main responsibility and uh when it comes to 9-11 the children are not being taken care of um which is not what we do so lila's going to tell us what's going on and what we can do to help so lila let's jump right in Absolutely. Um, so there were probably about 50,000 students and young people who were in the exposure zone on and after 9-11. So it's a huge number of people who only make up maybe, you know, like a sixth of the total population that was down there. There's obviously a lot of civilians that got impacted by 9-11. Um, and I think even that is not something that a lot of people are aware of. I mean, I live in California. So I am aware of what the rest of the country says about the 9-11 health issue when they you know, haven't been exposed to New York media all of this time. And what they say is that, you know, they have never heard about these people who lived and worked downtown. Um, a lot of them, when I say that I work on this issue, their first question is, was your dad a first responder? They assume that there's no reason that like a young woman might be involved in this cause. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that we frame um, our responsibility to victims in general. I mean, I think people can understand why, you know, we feel that we have a public responsibility to first responders because they are working on behalf of the public. So, of course, you know, we should absolutely be taking care of their health. We should absolutely be focusing on making sure that their jobs can be done safely. Um, but, you know, when it comes to community members, we often feel or speak like we don't really have a responsibility to members of a community who are also, you know, affected by poor policy decisions and affected by, you know, decisions that prioritize the health of the economy over the health of individual people. And that's problematic in a country that doesn't provide health care as a right. 
you know, it's really problematic when you, you know, talk about sending children back to school because maybe it's safe, but you're not going to provide for their care in the long term. So if they do get sick, they're sort of on their own. And that's kind of what happened after 9-11. I mean, I was a high school student on 9-11. I was a student at a school that was three blocks from ground zero. We got sent back to school on October 9th, which is, I mean, the fires weren't even out on October 9th. October 9th was basically, you know, the the middle of the search and rescue operation still. And they, you know, they decided to reopen our school. The decision was really based on a need to stop the economy from freaking out, you know. They're, they're, they were looking for acts of symbolism that would make it seem like New York was getting back on its feet because what's more distressing to the economy as a whole than the idea that Wall Street is going to be closed for the foreseeable future. So they marched this, you know, ver- this, this uh, special gifted and talented high school back um, in front of news cameras back into our building three blocks from the World Trade Center. And then left us there in the middle of this huge environmental disaster for months, all the while denying that there would be any long-term health consequences. Now, of course, we know, and we know because of data that was collected on first responders, that there were widespread health consequences to everyone who was in that community after 9-11. Our exposures in particular were very similar to a lot of the responders who came to help with the, um, with the actual cleanup operation. You know, it's, it, we were there for three months of fires. We, you know, had to walk through an area that was close to the public to get in and out of our school building. On my first day back in school, we had to show our IDs to something like five police checkpoints, which <laughs> maybe is not an indication that that's an area that's safe for minors right. and people without protective gear. <laughs> right. Um, but so there was sort of, a, you know, there was no responsibility taken for our health in the immediate aftermath. And, you know, it was a complicated time. And I think people were not necessarily thinking straight in general. But um, then when it became clear that that would have long term health consequences, much like with first responders, it was like suddenly no one had any responsibility for anything. Um, and we had an even harder time sort of proving our need and showing that we were um that, you know, showing showing that we needed the services because no one had even collected any data on us. That was, you know, I, yeah. I've learned a lot about the politics of uh, research and medical data in 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 doing this work. And, you know, what's so interesting is the the way that we determine need is based on the way that like research funding is, you know, apportioned. And of course, the FDNY was keeping track of people's health. So, of course, the FDNY was one of the first entities that could prove that there were health consequences coming out of 9-11. And well, of course, politics to that as well. Right. <laughs> yes. But 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 that's what leadership is. And, and to exactly. go back to what you said, that that people weren't thinking clearly, but that's your job as a leader, as a, right. as, a may, as a mayor, as a governor or whatever, is to think clearly when when the shit hits the fan. That's 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 what you get paid for. It's you're not, wild you're the- to me how bad adults in charge of things are about the about seeing long term consequences of literally right. any decision they make. I, I feel like uh, it's like uh, George Costanza running out of the room, screaming fire as he's pushing kids. Right. Uh, <laughs> that that seems like how our government responded after 9-11. They were just kind of. They freaked Absolutely. out. And then to, 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 to make it look like they weren't freaking out, they made horrible decisions that are now costing thousands more lives needlessly um, for all the reasons you just said, opening up Wall Street and, and all that yeah. uh, pomp and circumstance that really... Was it was for it was all for a sort of symbolic victory that had nothing to do with what was happening on the ground. I mean, it was symbolism. 
If you really want to never forget, if you want to make sure that never forget becomes more than a hashtag that's thrown away by politicians, listen to the full episodes from the conversations that I shared here. They'll be linked in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to Independent Americans and subscribe to the Firefighters with Rob Sarah. It's like no other podcast out there. And it's about so much more than 9-11. It's about our past. It's about our present. And it's about our future. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. A price we appreciate on 9-11 more than almost any other time. And we must stay vigilant and know that you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant, just like we were on that fateful day. And we're all in this together, just like we were on that fateful day. From Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to the Pentagon, all across America and around the world. From Rob Sarah to Rich Navioski to Joe Camarada to Al Berry to Lila Nordstrom to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. Stay vigilant, America. And never forget. Powered by Righteous Media.